0: Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. It's your host John Scardina. I am so excited for this episode. I met this incredible individual about a year ago, actually in Orlando for a Die Pop exercise. If you remember Colonel McKinney, who is now General McKinney, his uh, one of basically his number two, now retired Lieutenant Colonel Brian Higgins. So big shout out to him. He said, "Hey, you got to meet this uh, incredible guy. He's a former Ranger." He's awesome. He's now the director of the National Center of Urban Operations. It's a think tank back based out of New York. Just like with really the tip of the spear of all things. Uh, um, uh, urban warfare, urban operations. And so he's going to talk about that, t- that today. Why talking about it during the week of Thanksgiving? First of all, we're big fans of the military. And uh, we always want to say thank you to everything that they do for us. We also really believe in making sure that Um, As we're looking at historical events like the Mumbai terrorist attack or what's happening now, comparing that to to now, rather, with Ukraine, what's happening in Gaza, I wanted to talk to an expert. I want to say, hey, what's going on over there? What is the emergency management perspective? But I also want to make sure that we are protecting civilian populations and protecting people who are not, um, you know, combatants. So. With that being said, I would like the the great pleasure of introducing Chris onto the podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me today. John, how's it going? Well, you're a great hype man, by the way. I got motivated just listening to you. You know what? Like I said, I have this mannequin behind me. I think I'm going to name him uh, Chris because of the you know amazing Chris physique. Uh, so we're doing that. But, you know, let's go back to a year ago at Dipop. You're a military guy. You've been military your your whole career. You're now leading this amazing think tank, and I want to talk about that for a second. In terms of walking into this conversation, where we had this kind of a mixed bag of military, first responders, emergency managers dealing with an attack on a stadium, what was your perspective, maybe before you went in there, and um, what kind of the takeaways? Not about the training per se, but uh, you know, comparing civilian side to military side.
1: No, that's a great question, John. And and I think it's a great way to kind of frame the discussion today because, um, so much of the urban problem set is so complex that it can't be handled by just the military or just emergency managers. Um, you know, I came into that not knowing what to expect. I had very rudimentary understanding of what an emergency manager does. But as a professional in our craft in our space, we always seek more learning, which is yeah. one of the themes I'll hit on throughout this. So, seeing how you guys built this this crisis that everybody had to coalesce around and immediately start applying their their you know their professional tools uh, was incredibly insightful. Um, you know, I, I think I said towards the end of it. You know, I spent most of my career on the other side of the house, i.e., I was the element causing crises on other people. <laughs> It's pretty so to see like how crisis management took place uh you know from a mercy manager's perspective was incredibly eye-opening and it was i thought it was an excellent exercise overall i appreciate that you know we really want to make sure that
0: you know there's so many um components to try to do this right uh there's stopping the bad guy which is kind of your side of the house but you know things happen murphy's law is real things slip you know things happen so if there was a, a terrorist attack again in the United States, you know who are all the parties, and you know you can't have a great exercise if you don't have military first responders, you know the emergency management coordination, all those pieces to come together. What I like most about that training is that, you know, we it forces people to take responsibility without having legal authority. You know, so many t- so many times like people fall back on my side, like oh, I can I can have to I have to operate within this box. But that box kind of implodes when big things happen you're right? and yep. they have to be able to think outside the box, which is basically your entire career of like thinking outside the box and understanding those components. So that being said, um, and I, and I appreciate that cause I was just hyper curious in the beginning, um, wouldn't it be appropriate to, uh, talk without really understanding your history and really what you're doing there as the director, <laughs> of the national center of urban operations, can you kind of explain like your perspective and what you guys are trying to do over there.
1: Uh, sure. hundred uh, percent. Just a quick overview of my background. So I just recently retired out of the army as a you know infantry officer, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, spent 20 years, uh, between the Ranger regiment, asymmetric warfare group, a bunch of deployments overseas. Uh, and I think, uh, everybody on our team has some kind of scar tissue related to operating in an urban environment where we felt either a, a little less than prepared or B, the mission was, uh, incredibly difficult just due to the scale of it. So, you know, when we all retired, we all wanted to continue to help the military drive forward on training, education, and concepts when it came to urban operations. So, uh, one of our co-founders, um, you know, uh, Colonel retired Patrick Mahaney, retired special forces officer, Brooklyn native. I think you've met him at at some event. I can't remember exactly. He was Philadelphia. i met him. Yeah. yeah, he's familiar with all your guys' work. He loves it, by the way. And uh, he uh, he basically started the National Center for Urban Operations there in New York City um, to be a, a, uh, essentially a community of practice between public safety professionals and then national security professionals awesome. as we work to keep uh, urban areas safer, uh, specifically in the United States. I mean, obviously. Um, when, when you go to New York City, with you see what happened during 9-11, and then you see the power of the interagency and how they all come together to try to prevent another 9-11. So it's a great place to work.
0: Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's disaster-tough endorsements. The L3Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field-tested it with medical, urban search and rescue, and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. If you served in the military, you've probably worn Proper Apparel. Proper Apparel is now reaching out to first responders and those who love the outdoors. Check out Proper Apparel from the outdoors to the EOC where proper. Okay, let's jump back in. You know, the i don't know if it's just getting older and so like i i feel like i'm i'm i have more situational awareness of what's been always been happening in the world but it does feel like things are getting more like progressively more dangerous on basically every front and what is fascinating to me is like turning on the news and uh you know the pundits like casually talking about world war three of like oh this might happen like you're like I, I don't feel like this should be a casual conversation, and yet it's the world we live in. Uh, let's fast forward to like both Ukraine and Gaza and the spillover effect. From your perspective, especially from that urban warfare, it feels like all war, in in, in at least in the modern age, will be not fought on open fields but in urban centers. How do, how do we? I don't even know how. I, I don't even, like. I, I don't want to be nonchalant in this, like the pundits do. But how do we even like get ready for something like that, where it's like, okay, these mega cities, like you know, du- you know, uh, Dubai or Mumbai or New York cities <laughs> of the world, Houston's. It feels like you know there's there's so much to be learned, and yet, um, the history of war is maybe very different than what the history, the the, you know, the future
1: mm-hmm. of war will be. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? I don't, yeah 100 percent. i mean this is this is the the problem set that we deal with day in day out at the National center for urban operations um you know the the world's not getting any less urbanized and because of that you know wars are fought, fought where people are um you know yeah. it's it's an unavoidable future I mean, you know the the conflicts are going to get more and more urban uh and the old doctrine of either bypassing or isolating and then doing you know pinpoint rates at some of that still holds true but when you don't have a choice like what we're seeing in real time in gaza city where you have to go in uh it makes this incredibly complex operating environment uh very very difficult kind of going to some of your points about the media um i'm going to cover real quick what we talk about is like the five eyes at the national center for operations and uh again shout out to Lieutenant girl brian higgins i think he wrote on the back of a bar napkin and he was like what do you think about this and i was like man Knocked it out of the park again, you know, Take something so complex and simplify it to a way that's understandable to people that aren't practitioners. Right. So the five eyes we refer to as number one is infrastructure, right? The density of the infrastructure, superstructure above ground, substructure below ground, and then just the density of buildings at surface level. Uh, the second eye is interagency. And the reason why we put that in there is we have seen that in various exercises or real life events. Interagency coordination that is good helps drive faster solutions, but if there's a lack of interagency coordination, then it becomes, yeah, exactly. Thumbs down. Yeah. Right. It goes. The shoot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hand in hand with interagency pieces, the interoperability. So the interoperability that goes from, okay, what do, what is our civilian policies versus our military policies? E- even going down to like radios. How do we talk to each other? We have different nets, right? So interoperability is something to think about. Yeah. Uh, the fourth eye is information. And this kind yeah. of gets to the media piece you mentioned before, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much going on in the world and the speed of information travels so fast that everything can be sensationalized. And I think one thing we saw early in Ukraine was that, you know, the power of the narrative, I think really inspired a lot of people in Ukraine to to believe, yes, we can stand up for ourselves and, and sure. uh, fight the Russians. And it, it the power of the narrative also inspired a lot of the international community to, to, community to back the Ukrainians as well. So Mm. information is incredibly powerful from a micro level. You know, you have to understand how information is playing in your backyard or in your, your area of operations, you're working in an urban environment. So Mm. if you have a blind spot and you're not aware that, you know, protesters are doing this or the locals are upset about that, like you, you may have gone into that urban area with a certain goal, but they have as the locals who live there, they have their own lives or their own goals and their own daily flow of life that yeah. they're trying to do. So that may impede what your overall, um, you know, goal was to, to, begin with while you're there. So the information is that, that is really the future. Um, you know, Dr. Russell and he has a great line in one of his books, um, his, the book is called, uh, come hell or high fever. And in there, he talks about information and one of the lines he says is, uh, you know, if, if the pen is mightier than the sword then the printing press is the equivalent to standing armies and social how- media can have the capability of a nuclear weapon, which is totally true, right? So yeah, you can 100%. see how fast somebody with a cell phone standing on a corner or filming a certain event can absolutely change the world, right? Because social yeah. media, it, it catches fire. So how do you deal with all this complexity and how, and where you know, the infrastructure, the people, and now i got other people i got to work with for solutions. Uh, and that that's where the fifth eye comes in and that's really innovation. So having an innovative mindset of how do we, how do we approach this problem from maybe a different angle? How do we think outside the box? How do we, how do we take what works from our doctrine, but maybe tweak it a little bit for this particular environment. So the five eyes is really a good way for us to kind of break down the complexity of the problem set and then how can we arrive at a solution? So that's really phenomenal infrastructure, interagency,
0: interoperability, information, innovation. That's it. Love it. Um, yeah. next week, the readiness live is going to come out with this, uh, new idea of five eyes for emergency management. Now <laughs> it's, uh, that's really uh, honestly that we might have, uh, just, uh, found our title for the episode, the five eyes of, you know, urban operations, but, Oh man, you, you would make again, one Brian Higgins, very happy man. If you yeah, saw yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the five Bs of, you know, uh, Brian, 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 um, guys, a cool guy. And, um, you know really it's really fascinating to me you know speaking of him and now general mckinney um and you i I, when i see military professionals who are willing to work with civilian populations i get a lot of hope for the future of protecting people because a lot of uh the first responder perspective is unfortunately very micro that you know they've responded to i I don't want to um minimize their experiences but domestic incidents, you know, stopping cars, that that kind of stuff on such such a small scale, they don't really understand big scale. And military is all about, you know, how do you do tactical operations to affect big change? And I really want to get emergency managers and really the emergency services field to capture that thought of there's all these individual missions that are happening now. My missions are like sheltering operations, search and rescue, you you know, uh, gathering um, or or evacuating populations. Like those are each individual mission sets. And yet if you fail on any of those mission sets, you fail overall, you have to get people out of disaster. You have to get them safe. You have to keep them uh, safe against future incidents. And you have to feed them. You have to do all these things let alone the other side of the house, which is we don't want those things to come here, right? right? And so I'm just going to break this down. I'm using your five eyes, if you will. I'm hoping to shift the conversation. Can we talk about the five eyes individually from maybe what's happening in Gaza? Because I kind of preface this episode, right? Like I'm on the Israel side. Like you, you, you attack, uh, you know, uh, a music festival. And um, this part's kind of sensitive for the audience, but if you rape and drag bodies of females in the streets cheering, I- I'm all in for taking you out. And they built these tunnel systems specifically under hospitals and schools, right? Dra- like they're yeah. using civilian populations to to do that. So in terms from an infrastructure perspective, can you help, me, help myself and the audience kind of understand the problem set that Israel has to deal with—I mean, we kind of mentioned the tunnels—but if you could kind of help us understand that,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 before we go into the the, the five eyes for that particular problem set, you know, I, I think what you mentioned before is kind of a key point that everybody who's listening should probably think about and consider from their particular job, right? Whether well, they're foxholes, we say in the military, and that's this idea of strategic compression, right? So a tactical event or, or a very tactical job that you may have to do. Uh, if it goes wrong, it can have strategic impacts, right? You know, the, the cascading effects of, okay, well, we weren't able to handle the evacuation effectively and now we have a bigger problem because, you know, more people are contaminated like we did in the, in the dine pop exercise. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that concept, it really comes from the idea of what we have called the strategic corporal, which was, um, you know, meant mentioned by a, a former Marine Corps General, General Krulak. And the strategic corporal was somebody who was on the ground in the middle of an urban fight and they did something that immediately had strategic impacts to, you know, what was now being told to US forces, you know, operating in a place like Saint Fallujah, right? Really? So this concept strategic corporal, it, it goes, it's it's a good example of what strategic oppression is. And that strategic compression really is is driven a lot of times, like we mentioned before, by the interconnected nature of the world with, with cell phones and social media, things like that. So strategic compression is something to always think about. Like you may think that you're like low man on the total pole and you have a small job, but if it doesn't go well, it could have cascading effects, both positive and negative. Right. Depending how good, how could you do your particular job? Yeah. So everybody's, everybody does have to be kind of like professional in their particular job and, and know it in and out and, and be dynamic as they're thinking, but um, to get to your question about the, the, the current five eyes. If we're break down what's going on in Gaza, uh, the infrastructure is, is the obvious hard problem right now with the amount of subterranean uh, facilities and tunnels and everything else underneath Gaza city, that is what we call a asymmetric capability, right? So an asymmetric capability is essentially a, a low cost, high impact capability. That typically a weaker, uh, force will use against a stronger military. So examples of asymmetric yeah. capabilities that we're familiar with are like the IEDs, right? So when I was in the invasion of Iraq, uh, 2003, you know, we we're rolling around Baghdad for the first half of it, you know, in just on un- like no armor on our Humvees. Right. And Whoa. then all of a sudden in like December 03, IEDs started coming out of nowhere and they just started blowing everybody up you know, that drove, you know, complete changes until like the, 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 kind of vehicles we were getting from, um, the defense industry and changes in tactics and everything else. So that was a, and these IDs were cheap, right? Cheaply made. Yeah. Uh, and, and they, and they killed and a bunch of soldiers. Right. And they really disrupted operations. That that's a classic asymmetric capability. Uh, asymmetric capabilities we're seeing play out today, um, both in, in Ukraine and places like, uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, and then in Israel is, is the small UAS, right? We even saw them in Mosul when ISIS was using these, right? And these were small right. commercial off the shelf, uh, drones, which UAS for the group is, you know, we call that unmanned aerial systems in the military, but you know, it's these right. small commercial off the shelf drones, like DGIs that are bought from China for like 1200 bucks a pop. And they were weaponizing them, right? They were putting you know, hand grenades on them, uh, explosives on them. Uh and that's a that's a cheap, reproducible capability that can negate, you know, a multi-million dollar tank, right? If you drop this yes. explosive into the hatch of a tank and kill the group, you've negated that capability, right? So that's Boom. another asymmetric uh capability. The the one that the IDF for dealing with right now is this subterranean fight. Um and just for the, the good of the group, you know, we in the military break down subterranean into three faci- three kind of categories. Category one is very rudimentary tunnels. Uh, things that you may see like crossing the border between us and Mexico. Uh, there was a bunch of rudimentary rudimentary tunnels between Gaza and Israel. These are quickly made. Uh, they can be very deep. Uh, sometimes they have uh, some infrastructure to it, like lighting and airflow and things like that, but small you know, for movement, right? And that's category okay. one. Category two is like <laughs> the civilian infrastructure you would see in any major city around the world. So subway systems big utility tunnels things like that sewer systems those are all cat- category 2 subterranean facilities yeah. category 3 is purpose-made uh military purpose-made subterranean facilities so think about all the various underground facilities in North Korea right where yeah they have all their indirect fire platforms they have artillery um they have you know full-scope full-scale bases in there so that that's a category 3 so in Gaza which is a very small uh, piece of land, especially Gaza City. You have all three of those kinds of subterranean facilities, yeah. all underground, right? Um, and Hamas is using that as an asymmetric defense, right? So, like, it, it essentially takes away the strength of the IDF's ability to execute combined arms. So, yeah. combined arms is when you have like ground assault with like air, you know, air power and artillery. Once, yeah. you go under, once you go underground and into the tunnel, it's like me and you face-to-face in a lot of these situations, right? So it makes it makes it extremely difficult to operate in. So that's like the infrastructure side of the house. Can you ever trust people if they
0: were mixed in a population before that created Hamas? I don't know. Does, I don't know. I'm just yeah, saying that. No, no,
1: that's that's a good question. Um, you know, it, you everybody has to be in the information game. Right. And the, and there's, trust me, there's a million smarter people than I, am when it comes to countering ideological, uh, you know, concepts and things like that. But the problem is we all have to get involved, right? You know, because yep. everybody has the power and the pull of their hand to push out a narrative, to push out a positive ideological concepts to, you know, thumbs down a negative, you know? uh ideological concept that may come across your feed on like reddit you know yeah. so everybody's got to kind of be involved and they have to like do their best to to figure out what's truth versus what's a narrative right but that's yeah. that's that's kind of like you know those of us that live in in modern society that's our frame of thinking terrorists and, and the breeding grounds for terrorism they don't really care about all that right like you know they, they have a much different viewpoint of, of the world um, and one that's you know a lot of times embedded in a religious uh, background, right? And uh, it because of that, like we're we're kind of trying to counter, you know, a, an extremist religious viewpoint that that has been instilled in them from birth. With like, hey, well, common sense, Western world says that this is the way it should be, right? So the- I think the first step is we got to recognize that there's a huge gap there in the way that you know terror terrorists view information versus how we do um and then how do you close that gap and, and i think uh it's not anything there's no silver bullet to that right it's got to be something that a lot of times is is pushed over time it's got to be pushed by you know fellow uh you know people from the same background to say like hey you know what you're thinking is not correct but one thing i do want to kind of go back that we were talking about what about the risk here in the states uh we do have the power of the interagency here right which is why that's what our five lies. Um, so getting people talking to one another and understanding each other and, and building bonds across the interagency before a crisis, you know, yes. that's one of the the huge takeaways that could help us either prevent, you know, terrorist attacks, low wolf attacks, um, crisis in general. And if we can't prevent it, at least immediately respond forcefully, uh, to try to, you know, get things back to the status quo. So not to make light of the situation, but
0: there is an episode of Family Guy where peter was in jail and he gets out of jail right before somebody tries to give him the shiv and this guy's sitting alone in the jail cell and he's like looking at this shiv and he like pokes himself with it with it he's like ah he's like oh is this what i've been doing to people i deserve to be here (laughs) maybe maybe uh maybe we just need to have everybody listen to disaster tough and like oh they'll realize but speaking of the interagency uh, component and kind of reflecting based off of, you know, when we met a year ago and then we saw each other in Nashville for the DUT, which was awesome, by the way. So big shout out to everyone in Nashville who is was uh, working in that, um, the interagency c- component Explain to me, and I, I think I understand the concept, but
1: inter- explain the difference between interagency and interoperability. Yeah. So interagency is, is very much a term that we use within you know, federal circles, uh, department of defense circles. It's how, do, how do we work across our existing federal state, local, you know, municipal entities, right? Uh, because we all have, you know, our own chains of command and we all have our own authorities and our own budgets and our own capabilities. Uh, and if you don't work from an interagency perspective, you know, you end up with these like stovepipes of success, right? It's like, yeah. man, you know, this, this, uh, you know local agency did excellent in responding, but they could have done a little better if they actually would have, you know, leveraged something from a, a sister agency. Right. So that's the interagency concept interoperability. Yeah. A lot of times gets to, uh, actual, like what capabilities, like what radios are we using, like, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, yeah. weapon systems are we using? What, uh, you know, communication device, all those kinds of things, and also what planning, and this is the bigger thing I think is more important, is like what planning processes do we use? Um, so a planning process for a military person is going to be different than a planning process for you know, like a, a professional uh, firefighting, uh, you know, the FDNY or something like that, right? So you know, planning processes is where a lot of the interoperability needs to come together because you could have the interagency all together in the same room, but if they can't talk because they can't get past their own organizational language then you have an interoperability problem.
0: Hey, we're going to do a quick pause X to thank our sponsors, L3Harris, Proper Apparel, Impulse, Doberman Emergency Management, and all those subscribers who reach out to us and give us a donation to help us keep us going. Let's jump back in. Uh, case in point, 9-11. A helicopter, uh, I think it was a police helicopter, I think, I think it was a police helicopter, couldn't inform the firefighters on the ground. That's right. That were in the other building. that were Yeah, and so... Yep. Um, You fast forward to today, um, that is a problem set that I am constantly aware of and at this point very sick of. In every single after action report, like the number one thing that comes out of it is like communications issues, both from the interagency perspective and from the interoperability perspective, through equipment use, through language, through getting along, whatever, through known relationships prior to all the way through people operating in the same disaster at the same time having no idea that the other person's been operating under there. there I was just at the um, the National Urban Search and Rescue Conference talking about a big operation where we evacuated 30,000 people out of, uh, I think it was like north of Corpus Christi in Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. somebody came up to me afterwards and said, that didn't happen, you weren't there. And I was like, I was literally there there's pictures of me i was there and they they were so convinced in their little bubble in texas where they were operating i think it was out of houston they had no idea of this other thing and so it's like man like the guy was just like like the case in point of we need to overcome both these issues that was just it's just wild to me that that's even a thing right but that being said obviously i'm pretty pissed about it still but that's fine uh (laughs) Getting back to, like, the interoperability component, military versus civilian, in terms of Gaza, I deeply understand the humanitarian aspect of people who, for myriad of reasons, a hundred different reasons, uh, couldn't either fight back from the, the political leadership at the time, which was Hamas for several years, or currently now feeling that they're stuck because they can't get out. And so I want to help those people. I see those kids. I you know hear those series, that narrative that's being shared. You know, you look at the data, and you, you want peace, right, in Gaza, hundred percent, absolutely. Um, at the same time, I'm rural Israel. I I you know what happened there is difficult. From the interoperability component, whether it's Gaza or beyond, how does the military balance? Um, you know that we've been doing this now for 20 years right because of what's been happening in the middle east and the u.s is, um previously what we were you know trying to accomplish there you're always going to have a civilian population That civilian population doesn't seem to leave right right uh, how do you balance humanitarian
1: interoperability with military objectives so that's that's some of the power of information i mean i think the idf has done a pretty good job of broadcasting a lot of what they're doing to try to minimize some of the civilian population, uh, civilian casualties. But at the end of the day, it's also, I mean, they're in a full-blown war, right? Um yeah. and, and there is civilian casualties, unfortunately, in war. And and I think that's that's a it's a uncomfortable truth that a lot of people who have never been in a war don't realize, right? I mean, of course, we all we all would like peace and love throughout the world, and we all would like, you know, suffering to stop. But an uncomfortable truth of war is that, you know, people die. Um, yes. and, you know, in, in dense urban environments, it makes, uh, limiting civilian casualties that much more difficult when an adversary is literally having exits t- to their tunnel system into schools or hospitals. Um, cool. and it's very deliberate that they're doing that, right. That's part of the Absolutely. asymmetric advantage they're trying to, to gain. Um, yeah. because they're hoping that, you know, somewhere along the way, there's going to be a mistake, uh, and that's, that's. One of the challenges I think the IDF faces is, you know, the concept of time, the longer this goes on, the more there is a risk that something may happen or a narrative is pushed that completely changes the dynamic of the environment with that strategic progression we talked about previously. So time is is not on the side of an attacker in an urban environment um, right. because it, it, it could make uh, increased chances for, you know, civilian casualties that's uh i mean that kind of
0: if you look at ukraine that narrative in the beginning of people staying and uh john spencer who was on the podcast talked about that of like the numbers you need to uh, to attack an urban uh center if you have a population who stays exponentially over time it just becomes more and more difficult and that is exactly where we're at right now uh, with ukraine Uh, you know i think everybody thought ukraine was going to fall in like you know half a second and it's gonna it's basically a forever war at at this point um and that narrative man they they've been you know fighting that for a while now whether you agree with what they're doing or not what they're doing it's that narrative piece comes into a play of you know does it do they still have an opportunity the time piece you know fighting uncomfortable truths the uncomfortable truths that i always have to like push people to realize like on the, on the natural hazard side, even the natural hazard side is like, people die in disasters. That's why it's called a disaster. Yeah. You know, yeah. if your home's impacted, guess what? It's gonna be 10 years before you're back in that home. That's the reality, right? A uh, great friend of mine lost his home in Hurricane Ian, I think it was, and that was two years ago, and he said, hey, it's gonna be another two years, right, before he's fired. I think actually, it actually might've been a year ago, but he said it will be another two years before they have, you know, any kind of structure that's, that's sound, things take time. The problem set of information is that information's instantaneous, but solutions are not. And so people get so impatient. Um, and you know, we, we can both, I think, appreciate is, um, you know, the uncomfortable truth of get over it. Like things take time. If you want to do things, if you do things right, they they have to take time. And yet, yeah, uh, we I I don't want anybody to be, able to be impacted, but I also don't want terrorists to ever exist ever again. So that's right. Yeah, you know, it's a yeah. it's a tough. Yeah, no, the uh
1: like I said, the the terrorism thing has not gone away. You know, ideal idea ideologies like that. I mean, they they can last for centuries, right? So yeah, um, you know, you you see it. I had a. A buddy of mine, he was one of the last commanders in, in Afghanistan and I was asking about, you know, the fighting of ISIS over there and everything else. And he's like, you know, if there's one thing the enemy doesn't have, it's like a force generation problem because we've been at this for twenty yeah. years and there's no shortage of enemy, right? So yeah. you know, that's just kinda like highlights the power of, of an ideology and, and how it can really drive, you know, persistent conflict and terrorism. So Which drives the last point of what you're doing right now is innovation.
0: Right? We gotta do things differently. The readiness lab, that lab part of readiness lab is is really um, harping or foot stomping that innovation piece. I need to get better on my side of the house. I am so sick of the stupid mistakes that have gotten people hurt, the responders or the civilians, Um, you know, and these large scale disasters. I think we could be exponentially better with better information and better interoperability and better interagency and the, the whole thing. Even better infrastructure we have aging infrastructure that impacts you know everything that we're trying to to operate under and yet that doesn't even address all the information problem um you know we have we have a lot of issues that uh the issues are the same the the problem sets are very different right that makes any sense um so in terms of the innovation piece of either what gaza needs to address or urban warfare in the future Besides coming onto an emergency management podcast, which I thoroughly appreciate because I'm asking you super basic questions that I'm just curious about, which I'm sure you're like, dude, I could talk about this, you know, ad nauseum, but, um, what do we need to do in, in, in order to innovate to the next level to save and protect lives in an urban environment?
1: no that, that, that's a great question um and we always teach in our courses up in new york city when we have various units coming up that it starts with the right mindset right having that innovative mindset of okay i'm gonna just due to a problem of scale just the the, the 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 density complexity and intensity of an urban environment you know how can i drive solutions that will uh meet, meet the outcomes i'm looking for so it starts with the mindset yeah. But the other thing that I think that is important for everybody to understand is that you you can't come in and just do like a wholesale change on something, right? So you have to also be a professional and understand your profession. Because once you kind of have a deep understanding of your job and your profession, it'll, it'll almost be like a light bulb where you recognize the capability gaps that exist, right? And it's like, yeah. oh, I've been doing this for like five years and this consistently is a problem in my job. Now that's where I want to apply that innovative mindset to find a solution, right? So you got to definitely know your job, um, be a professional in your job, and then identify what those consistent problems and gaps are and start trying to drive towards an innovative solution towards it. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting uh, when I was at the asymmetric warfare group is we did a study on how much of our innovative solutions were material in nature. So i I buy something commercial off the shelf Uh, you know, we, we, 3d for new capability versus non-material. And it came out to like 83% of our innovative solutions were non-material, right? It was, it was a change in our processes or a change in how we did business, or it was bringing different people from different organizations into a small, like cross functional team, right? So we had all these non-material solutions that didn't really cost any money. They just required a change in thinking,s and a willingness to deviate from your existing processes, right? which that's mm-hmm. the hiccup and we're like, ah, I think you said it before. It's like, I've got my, I've got my processes. I'm going to do my process. Cause that's what my job requires. You know, yep. you got to get out of that mindset. You have, the, have to have the innovative mindset of like, okay, I understand the process. And because of that, I feel comfortable deviating from the process to find an innovative solution.
0: Well, what, what about the problem of, you know, or rather let me rephrase this. You just, like, explained my entire field within, like, 30 seconds because... (laughs) You did
1: a a great job in Orlando.
0: I mean, I I love you three days. I'm a a good teacher. No. Um, the, The problem with innovation in emergency services and emergency management is that, ironically, in my field, the reason why emergency management really kicked off was for better mitigation and response project management really right like you know if you really look at the history it was for response let's not have response happen but if it happens we wanted to get better at doing response and you had a lot of people who retired out of the response job who wanted to write a brick on a shelf that nobody was ever going to read mm-hmm. and you know cushion job and somehow like we like we have to go back to our roots, which is like the the weirdest way to innovate, right? Like, hey, you, you forgot the original reason why we were all here in the first place, which is kind of my whole shtick on disaster tough. Like I want emergency managers to learn from people in adjacent fields, see what leadership's like and to apply. Right? If that happens, it's the win, right? That's really? that's the whole information sharing, though my whole like uh, cultural warfare that I'm trying to do in, in the same piece at the same time the military at least from my outside perspective and and you know zach's my number two in the company you i have the opportunity to work with a lot of military uh, personnel and excited for that it seems that the military when there's a problem set like ieds popping up okay we're gonna put armor on trucks we're gonna change tactics we're gonna put in new policies we're gonna try to get you know make this safer emergency managers it's like if you start talking about like uh data science or using you know better processes it's like but wait what about my brick on a shelf you're like plans are great but your plans actually kind of suck because you're not using any of the other stuff any of the tools available my last question for you and we've been talking for a while and i'm really grateful for your time here is if you're going to address innovation and you have to be professional and you have to understand where you can innovate If my big problem set is that willingness to innovate outside of something stupid happening and therefore the, the forcing to innovate, how do you, how are you a positive force of change and innovation?
1: That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think the way I look at it as, and this is what I would tell my junior officers is you want to make your corner of the army as best as you can. Like the, the big army machine may have problems. Um, but if you are focused on your little corner, your army and doing the absolute best you can, then, uh, then you'll be all right. So, so how do you do that? Right. And I think it really comes to exercising innovation, like exercise a real world mm-hmm. event, even if it's small and even if it's just your little team, uh, you know, you look at, okay, if there was a disaster, um, what would we do? What would our response be? Right. Mm-hmm. And if every leader kind of starts like legitimately planning exercises, uh, throughout, you know, an entire calendar year, not just once. And then, Hey, we're doing this to certify that that we're good to go on the eyes of whoever's looking at us. And it's like, no, like let's actually embrace the hardest parts of our craft, the hardest parts of our job, and let's drill this consistently, right? Like you don't want the first time where you're dealing with shared hardship when an actual real life shared hardship occurs, right? So. So build in mentally challenging tabletop exercises into like your, your weekly or biweekly events. It doesn't have to be a big production. A lot of times it could be like, Hey, we're going to get around the light board and we're going to talk this for three hours and and here's the scenario, right now let's look at what the solutions. What are some of our assumptions we may have, uh, and then, you know, what are some innovative problems? So, you know, I think exercise, exercise, exercise is, is the takeaway for, for leaders at all levels, but you know, all the way up to like, you know, a governor's uh, staff, you know, down to what somebody who may be an incident commander at some point, you know, they got to really look at how can I do exercises routinely to where everybody in my team has a good understanding of what's expected of us. Yeah. those exercises can be tabletop exercises
0: you called out. It can be functional. You could be, you know, just, I like the idea of shared hardship. Like I like to call it getting in the mud with people. If Mm -hmm. I haven't been in the mud with you, I don't want to do that for the first time in a disaster because I I don't know how you operate under high stress. You know how I operate under high stress. When I am in really high stress situations, my humor comes out and it's super dark, you know, and (laughs) there's no filter left. Yeah. But it's how I deal with the stress, right? If somebody's like stressing out and they have a lot of anxiety and they don't want to like laugh and I'm over there like making a joke about, you know, the dead people or whatever, you know, that might not go over well, yeah. right? And vice versa, if you know, they're, they're, they're a level of stress. And so it, we want to become more professional both as a group and as an individuals and like recognize all those different situations where we can operate as a team. Um, I'm going to give myself a, a pretty big, uh, uh, tip of the hat here because the readiness lab came out with a paid subscription called the insider program it's basically a membership and the team has several things that happen every single month we come out with our own tabletop exercises and so if people are struggling to come up with like scenarios right because one they haven't been in a real disaster before or they're just not a creative person we're like literally giving them new scenarios with audio and visual and the whole deal that they can check into we have that's live great. webinars. We have yeah. our own podcasters for them. I think Pete Gaynor, former head of FEMA, is gonna be with us in December. Like we're trying to help the field, but we're not enough. Like that's one aspect, but people do need to build it into their normal routines. What, one of the things, and I'm gonna call out FEMA here for a second. One of the te- one of the things that I frust- was frustrating to me on the national strike team that I'm at West, we had a lot of blue sky time, but we didn't do a lot of exercises yeah, like man. why wasn't that a thing now we had some and we had a really great team but i think i think people once they get good they think all right now i'm good now i can focus on other stuff but you can't lose that competitive edge you have to keep exercising it has to become normalized across the board so great call out there
1: yeah and and one final thing too you mentioned before about how the army iterates rapidly and rap, rapidly in quotes for those of you listening. Um, on how fast the army iterates on solutions compared to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's lightning <laughs> speed. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that the frame, the frame of mind that everybody in the military has in a combat zone is that. You know, manpower is a finite resource, right? So yes. you have to, you don't have a choice, right? If, if soldiers are dying, you absolutely need to figure out a way to change that immediately. Right. Yeah, And then still. Accomplish your mission and still, you know, be successful in whatever mission you were given. So that, that mindset of, Hey, you know, it's happening to, to us, our guys. I think, I think there may be something there that may be worth exploring because emergency managers in general are responding to a population that's dying, a population that's undergoing a hardship, right? Sure. Versus fellow emergency management team people. You know, in um, some yeah, cases, no way. And, yeah, I mean, and I'm thinking more of like, from like the, 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 um, emergency management cells and, and operational centers and things like that. Right. Yeah. So I think that there needs to be a frame of mind of anybody who's in the emergency management business is like, you know, my actions or inactions or in my, uh, you know, dedication to planning and preparation will directly impact somebody's life, right? Live or yes. So having the right mindset of like what I do matters. And if I don't do it well, or if I'm slow, you know, it could have negative impacts on somebody else's life is something that is just inherently driven into us in the military. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. there may be something there that's worth exploring, just the mindset of an emergency manager versus the mindset of like a, a military, uh, leader. Yeah, we could
0: probably, man. Okay. I'm writing that one down because my, like my, my, my brain is already thinking about the the whole thing of taking responsibility. There's a, there's a whole lack of that, and there's a whole lack of understanding what your role is because we haven't really defined well, historically, what emergency managers are supposed to do. Are they the retired guy that wants an easy job, or are they are they a guy or girl who had a tactical job, and now they're excellent at the strategic job because they understand the tactical? That's very different. It could be the exact same person, you know, but their their mindset completely changes the game and until we figure that out as a field the people who hire us whether you're working for a fortune 500 company a stadium or the government if they don't know what we're supposed to do what our standard mindset is then why should they give us funding why should they give us opportunities why should they pay for all that training or exercises when we don't have the mindset of the decisions I make today will save or not save somebody's life down the line. And I, I think that's a great call out. Chris, seriously, it's it's more than a pleasure to talk to you. I want you to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, I have about 100 more questions I want to ask Is you she- about urban centers and working in urban centers. Thank you for helping us understand the, the complexity of what they're dealing with right now in uh, Gaza and what Israel has to deal with that. Um, you know, from the podcasting perspective, everybody who's listening in, Again, I'm pro-Israel, however, we definitely want war to end. We hope that people like Chris and his team, and as they they go through the five eyes, the infrastructure, interagency, interoperability, information, and innovation of dealing with urban warfare, that they can address those things to be able to save lives faster. And, and I really hope the best for Chris and his team and for all those who are trying to stop war from happening. So, yeah, um,
1: with that big and- call out, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. And I just, I just want to throw this out to everybody as well. So thanks to you and your team for, you know, having us on and, and to anybody who's listening. I mean, obviously if they're listening to your podcast, they're, they're trying to do the right thing as it is. Right. You know, so when we talk about, you know, things that everybody can do better that I think that comes from a, a place of understanding that everybody's working hard in a very difficult field, um, yes. but it does require, you know, everybody trying to up their game a little bit more each day. So thanks for having me on as well. It, it was been a, a great discussion. Sure. All right. So
0: if you like this podcast, if you're thinking about urban warfare, if you're thinking about the emergency management perspective, if you've been watching what's happening in in Gaza or Ukraine and wondering what you would do with civilian populations if we were hit by terrorists or otherwise, how do you save and sustain life? You know, it might not be a terrorist. It might be an earthquake that takes out the entire West Coast. How do you deal with tens of millions of people who have to, have their lives saved and sustained. If you're thinking about those kind of questions, we would love to see that in the comments below. We want to thank, again, Director Chris D. Ryder from the National Center of Urban Operations. That thing tech in New York is doing amazing things. If you're in the military and this is kind of an angle that you have been focusing on and that you want to learn more about, make sure you check out what they're doing. Chris, thanks again so much for coming onto the podcast and talking with me. And uh, we really hope that Um, you and your team, again, can just do wonderful things to help uh, the U.S. military move uh, the mission forward. So thanks again. Appreciate it, John. Good times. All right. So uh, with that being said, if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating subscribe, and we'll see you for next week. Thanks. Hello, this is John Scardina, the founder of the Readiness Lab. I'm a big fan of George Siegel. George Siegel is a documentary filmmaker who's creating a new film called Built to Last – Buyer Beware. He is making a film that will help you and others learn how to protect your home against any incident. For those who've responded to lots of disasters like we have, we understand how critically important it is to protect your home against builders, insurance, incidents, what name you. This documentary, Built to Last, Buyer Beware by George Siegel, is a great way to learn about this. You can support this cause and learn more about how you can protect your own home by donating to the film's cost. To learn more about this fundraiser, go to movetheworldfilms.org.